case is submitted. We'll hear argument next, number 001471, the Kentucky Association of Health Plans versus Janie A. Miller. Mr. Eccles. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, when Congress enacted ERISA, it created a federal regulatory structure for employers and unions to sponsor plans that provide health care benefits for employees and their families. The vast majority of ERISA plans throughout the country have chosen to provide these benefits through HMOs or other managed care entities that use limited provider networks in order to deliver quality health care at a reasonable cost. The Kentucky laws before the Court today preclude that use of limited provider networks and require an HMO, and by using that term I mean to encompass a variety of managed care arrangements, require those arrangements to allow into the network any provider willing to accept the network terms. Because ERISA saves from preemption state laws which regulate insurance, the question here is whether these any willing provider or AWP laws regulate insurance. Now, I take it these laws have become fairly common uh, around correct, the country. That's correct, So Kentucky's not alone okay, in having such a Kentucky has a relatively broad law, Your Honor. Many of the laws are pharmacy solely, but the, Kentucky is not alone. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, can Kentucky exclude certain specialties? Like they say, we will not have chiropractors uh, in, in, in Kentucky. Can the plans do that? No. Or, it, in other words, they have to be open to various subspecialties. There are, there are different uh, laws about that. The Kentucky law by itself and the definition of provider includes uh, a variety of specialties, including chiropractor, and there's a separate chiropractor any willing provider law also. But the question here is whether that law regulates insurance. And last term in Rush Prudential versus Moran, the Court said, that a law regulates insurance when insurers are regulated with respect to insurance practices. AWP laws do not regulate insurance practices. They do not affect the risk of financial loss that's transferred by the HMO policy. They do not change the terms of the policy at all, and they do not change the bargain between the insurer and the insured. But they, they, they do uh, have something to say about Who's going to be available as a doctor on the they, practice? They change the network. That's correct, Your Honor. They, through a, they, they potentially change the network. The law itself wreaks, creates no change uh, if the provider elects to join the network and is willing to accept the terms. But isn't that a change in the policy? Doesn't it give the, the patient a, a right he otherwise would not have? No, Your Honor. It, gi- it gives the patient no right he would otherwise not have. If you looked at the exemplar policy that's uh, in Exhibit C to the Joint Appendix, you will see nothing that's changed in the policy terms. Well, there's nothing in the policy term that has changed uh, in, in, a, in the literal sense of a change in language. But it seems to me that it does mean that under a policy subject to a law like Kentucky's, the person who joins the HMO, in effect the person who obtains the insurance, has a far greater choice uh, in, in effect, uh, in, in the expenditure of benefits under that policy than he otherwise has. He's getting something under a policy subject to the Connecticut law, uh, the Kentucky law, 
that he does not get under a policy without that law, and that is a breadth of choice about who is going to treat him. Not necessarily, Your Honor. The the choice exists if the provider elects to join the network. Well, well, sure, but I mean the the point of the statute and the point of the case is that providers do elect, uh, and to the extent that they elect, uh, the, the, the person subject to the policy has a choice that is uh, a, 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 a breadth of options that otherwise are not going to be available. Uh, uh, potentially. In a even, even not potentially. I mean, even, even if nobody elected, even if nobody elected to join, what has happened by reason of this law, is it not the case that the term of the policy has changed, that originally the policy said we will pay for your treatment by a limited number of individuals whom, whom, we, whom we approve. And that policy is now changed to, by reason of this law, we will pay for your treatment by any individuals who want to join our plan. Uh, is, I, isn't that a different policy? Uh, the, the policy does not you know, change in that way, Justice Scalia. What, what the policy It's not says, rewritten, but doesn't the law have that effect to, to, to effectively change the term of the policy? No, it does not. And, and the reason is uh, what, what the policy provides is we will pay for care from participating physicians, from network providers, uh, and that — uh, is still the policy the, uh, before, with, or without the AWP well, well, law. Participating term, physicians uh, uh, before the law is defined as those physicians whom we are willing to accept as part of the plan. And after the law, the definition of participating physician is any physician who wants to join the plan. It, it has taken away uh, the HMO's ability to select. That's correct. That's, but the well, definition but, of who part, it is still limited to participating physicians who meet. In, in your opening remarks, you said it doesn't change the bargain. And it seems to me the thrust of Justice Scalia and Justice Souter's questions is it does exactly that. But the, before or after the AWP law, the participant has no right to choose any particular provider. The participant has the right to use the network physicians under the terms in the policy. After the AWP law, if a provider joins the network, the participant still has exactly the same right. The network but the, that, that really it, it, it does not seem to make sense to me. The purchaser has the same right in theory, certainly, to uh, go to any physician in the network, but the HMO has been required to expand the network. Uh, un, under that hypothetical, that's correct, Your Honor. Uh, What's hypothetical about Well, we don't know the effect of the law uh, on Well, for instance, here, if it's chiropractic services, and let's assume the HMO did not previously include chiropractic physicians as providers. After this law, if a chiropractic physician in good standing were willing to come in under the HMO, then the HMO would have to take that position, and then the, the uh, patient would have a possibility, at least, of having paid services seeing a chiropractor that, that, that formerly would not have been available. That, that would be a significantly different law, Justice O'Connor, and for this reason. In that case, uh, which is you know, generally referred to as a mandatory provider law, it's very much like the mandatory benefit laws that this Court has held to be saved. Uh, that changes the legal rights to get uh, of the insured to get 
that type of care, and it changes no, the well, risk why, of the policy. No, well, why is what I said different from what happens here? Be- because the, the terms of the, the network you know, would already provide for chiropractors. The only question is how many would come in. This law would not regulate that. That's regulated through other aspects of Kentucky law. Well, it, it's, it's maybe I'm under misapprehensions. How I, I thought that the, one of the examples given in the brief was a woman is being uh, uh, treated uh, uh, during the term of her pregnancy. She changes her employer. She wants uh, the same doctor to, 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 to treat her, and she is the one that can initiate the request to the HMO. Please allow this doctor to treat me, and the doctor then says, "Yes, I'm willing to be bound by the terms of the of the HMO." And, and she has that doctor. That seems to me to significantly increase the bargain that she made. Yeah, but the the bargain in, in that circumstance, if if it works out that way, uh, she she is able to stay with the doctor. But under only if the doctor can get into the network and is willing to meet the terms of the network, it's entirely up to the doctor to come in. Yeah, but the before un- the law. The network could have refu- refused him categorically, even though he were willing to meet the terms. That, that's correct, Your Honor. And I, so you, I just don't see that, that you, you make much headway in saying that isn't a change. Because the, the change is the legal right of the insured, which was never to any particular provider. And I don't, it's still I don't, true you're, after you're really, you're really asserting that, that, that two insurance policies are exactly the same, their terms haven't changed, or the terms aren't different, where one says you can get your automobile fixed, we will pay to get your automobile fixed by these companies, blah, 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 blah. And the other one says we will pay to get your automobile fixed by any company that is willing to do the job uh, up to our standards. And, and you think those two insurance policies are saying exactly the same thing, that there's only a hypothetical difference between the two? I, I think the difference between that hypothetical and, and mine is uh, the, the standard, with or without the law, is still if the provider uh, comes into the network uh, and you have the right to the network I don't provider, understand is if your all. view is correct, why are you objecting to the law? Uh, we believe that the law... Uh, yeah, Does it have any impact on your business? Yeah, it could, Your Honor. It precludes the plans from li- limited networks. And what that does, uh, and this is the point uh, made by the FTC staff, which has been writing uh, states objecting to these laws, uh, is it creates an uncertainty uh, in the network uh, because the bargain that's been made, the non-insurance bargain between the HMO and the providers, uh, is it's altered, although the policy is not. And, and suddenly the providers who are in the network already, uh, they signed up for a different deal, which was a limited network. They may not want the deal they've got because they'll have less uh, patient volume uh, than they thought they were getting. It also adds uh, significantly just administrative costs to deal with more <laughs> providers, and it's also more difficult uh, to monitor quality with a larger network. So it does have — it's the uncertainty of what the law's effect But you're complaining about the — the increase in the number of providers, and it's that increase that is what might be desirable from the patient's standpoint. Well, we're really complaining about the uncertainty that's created, that the networks can no longer uh, be selective, which has quality and cost implications, including fee implications. The any willing provider statutes have been around now for some time. And I understand the case that you're making 
in its most dramatic is it dispels the end of HMOs because the whole thing works only if they have few doctors and lots of patients so the doctors have a guaranteed patient flow. Has that happened in states with any willing provider laws, that there are so many doctors who are coming in that the doctors who were in, in the beginning now say the rates have to go way, way up because we don't have any guaranteed patient flow anymore? Uh, I can't tell you about the number of doctors, Justice Ginsburg. The studies that are in, cited in particularly in the amicus briefs suggest that there's been about a 15 percent increase in costs. Uh, arising so, of and, I mean, since we're, I'm not sure of the relevance of this, but I mean, if it turned out that can, this law, others like it, drove up costs for no advantages, couldn't the federal government stop them by, uh, under Medicare and Medicaid, wouldn't they have enough power, or would they, to uh, simply uh, write regulations such that they won't reimburse uh, states for uh, uh if these circumstances were quite bad. I'm not sure they could do it in in that uh, avenue through Medicare or Medicaid. The federal government could obviously do it directly with with its own law on the books. uh, That would require an an act of Congress. That's correct. You think they don't have the authority? I I, I don't think it would do that. But anyway, as far as the harm is concerned, A, we don't know that there's any harm. Right. Uh, B, we don't know if the government could deal with it in some other way. And so it's pretty much irrelevant to our decision. Is that right? Right. Right. What, what is relevant is whether, as the Court said in Moran last term, these are insurance practices. And the Court — And we're back at Justice Scalia's question. The, the — uh, is, is your whole distinction that here the direct beneficiary is the provider? That is, the, the effect of the any willing provider law is opened the door to the provider, whereas in Rush — and in Ward, it, it was the insured himself or herself. That, that's certainly a major part of our distinction. Is, is there anything more than that? The, 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 here the patient is the indirect beneficiary of opening the door to the provider. In those two cases, it was the insured. There, there was no third party involved. It was just the insurer and the insured. The, the patient, I would say, is a potential beneficiary, but without rehashing that, uh, those two cases, a legal right was created for the insured. Uh, in Ward, the Court said that was a mandatory contract term that had been added by using the notice prejudice rule, uh, and Rush added the uh, option of seeking external review in those ca- and described it as a legal right enforceable against the HMO. Here there is no such legal right, and we believe now, that in order to be an insurance practice under this Court's precedence, uh, the practice must either affect the spreading of risk, which uh, any willing providers but that was not do true. not do. that was not true That's in right. either Ward or, or — Or, as in Ward and Rush Prudential, uh, must uh, affect the legal rights of the insured. The, the Court has used a formulation of that phrase in, in many of its savings clause decisions, including those two. We, we also think the Court has approached this through a common-sense inquiry. That's how it begins the Savings Clause inquiry. And on a common-sense basis, uh, nobody contends that the provider contracts themselves are insurance contracts, and nobody contends that the providers are part of the business of insurance. Instead — Yeah, but nobody, nobody can seriously deny on the common-sense criterion 
that a person who gets HMO coverage on, with a subject to a law like Kentucky's is getting a far greater choice, potentially, and I presume actually since you're here, uh, than a person uh, who signs up for an HMO without the choice guaranteed. I mean, in a, in a common-sense way, someone is getting a different kind of coverage, i.e., a breadth of choice under the medical coverage that otherwise wouldn't be available. Well, I, I, I think the common-sense approach uh, can be uh, viewed by looking at this Court's decision on Royal Drug, and particularly if you look at the factual parallels with this case. If the Kentucky statute, the general any willing provider statute, can be disaggregated into a bunch of separate statutes, each about a different provider. The term provider includes podiatrists, physicians, optometrists, and pharmacists. So we have here, effectively, one part of this statute is an any willing pharmacy statute. That's functionally indistinguishable uh, from the statute that was before well, the case. Well, considered by drug. itself, if, if, if you simply narrow to the provider subcategory of pharmacists, uh, I, I assume you're right. But if you look at the, at the broad category that is covered by this statute, there is one, I think, significant difference between this and the, and the limited to pharmacy coverage in Royal Drug. I think the difference is this. Pharmacy coverage basically uh, is, is coverage for, uh, for, for benefits that are fungible regardless of where you get them. The super aspirin, the industrial strength Motrin is going to be the same no matter what drugstore you get it from. Medical coverage, however, is not. It is really important to patients uh, to, to choose a doctor because of the personal relationship. And therefore, I don't see the, the, the precedential force of royal drug uh, in, in a physician coverage, a, a physician option kind of case like but, this. But uh, under the Kentucky law, uh, the patient has no right to choose the family doctor. Well, the, the, the patient, in fact, is, is given, in practical terms, a breadth of option. It's true. The patient can't force a doctor to sign up with the HMO or force the HMO to take on a particular doctor. But in practical terms, there are going to be more doctors available under a Kentucky kind of regime. And in that sense, the patient is given a breadth of options that otherwise wouldn't be available. That seems to me to be important when one is selecting physician coverage in a way that is not important when one is selecting drugstore coverage. I, I understand the point, Justice Souter, although uh, the, the option and the, the preference don't match up perfectly. Uh, even if there is a broader range of options, they don't necessarily include a doctor with whom the patient has a prior absolutely, relationship. Absolutely right. But uh, returning to the pharmacy, uh, it's true that the aspirin is all the same wherever you go, uh, but the, the uh, agreements at issue in Royal Drug, uh, besides giving uh, the benefits of pure convenience, the ability to get the drug at the corner drugstore, which is not uh, nothing, uh, also gave it a very important uh, financial uh, advantage if, you, uh, if your pharmacy were participating. And, yes, and but another difference is there, there is an any willing provider law here. There's no any willing provider law in Royal Drug. There was a private arrangement among that, the. That's correct, Your the, Honor. The Blue Cross. That's correct, Your Honor. But the effect, uh, the, the agreements that were being regulated uh, in Blue Cro in, with Blue Shield and Royal Drug, uh, the court held were not part of insurance. And, right. and we have functionally the same type of agreements here, an agreement between the HMO and the pharmacy or other provider. 
uh, and they also should not be part of insurance. Uh, they're, they're outside the insurance relationship. And, but it was important, I, I want to make this point, important potentially to the patients, the insureds in Royal Drug, uh, that, uh, that their pharmacy became a, a participating pharmacy. It was not inconsequential. Uh, the, I mean, just the, as a matter of convenience? Yeah, besides convenience, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, the, the example in the Court's opinion was taken from the brief of the United States as amicus. They posited a $10 uh, drug at retail, uh, and if you got it at a participating pharmacy, it cost $2. If you got it at a non-participating pharmacy, it cost 100 percent more, or $4. Presumably those numbers are indexed since 1979 now and, and greater. But it was of great interest to the insured whether the pharmacy you know, was participating or not. It made a large cost difference, and yet the Court said uh, it is not insurance, in part because it was not affecting, was not integral to, was not changing the legal rights of the insured-insurer relationship. An antitrust case, then. Uh, that's correct, Justice I, I think maybe that makes a difference. Uh, that's argued in the briefs that it, that it makes a difference, and we understand it's an antitrust case. We, we still think, besides the direct factual parallel with the fact that Kentucky has an any willing pharmacy statute, uh, that Royal Drug uh, is still the correct analysis for — gives the correct analysis as to the uh, McCarran-Ferguson factors, really for two reasons. Uh, one is that's what this Court has applied consistently in its saving clause case cases. It, it, this Court said in the first saving clause case, Metropolitan Life versus Massachusetts, that the Royal Drug analysis was directly relevant to the ERISA saving clause. So it has the virtue of familiarity and precedent. Uh, and the, st- the standards, the McCarran factors, make sense here. They're objective factors uh, that give some content. Uh, to the uh, subjective test, the common-sense test. Uh, but the, the second piece of, of the many attacks that have been made on the, the relevance of royal drugs in the brief is uh, it, it's argued in the brief that this Court in FABE took a, a broader view, looked to a different clause of McCarran-Ferguson, and said it's broader, that uh, insurance regulation can be a little broader and is geared to uh, protect the performance of the contract. Uh, and we don't shy away from that. Uh, the, any willing provider laws have nothing to do with the performance of the HMO policy here. They just do not uh, add to that uh, policy at all. It's argued in the briefs through hypothetical examples that they are effectively Kentucky's uh, regulation of HMOs, that the adequacy of the networks and so on, and we are accused uh, of wanting to undo all regulation of HMOs. That's not our position here. The line we would draw would preserve most of the state's regulation of HMOs. Uh, but these laws are not laws that are substantive regulation of insurance, the AWP laws. They are not adequacy laws. They are not continuity of care laws. Kentucky has laws like that on its books. How would you characterize them? Uh, I would characterize them as a law that gives a right to a provider uh, and makes it difficult for HMOs and ERISA plans, but gives nothing of enforceable right to Well, if you, you, you don't like the label insurance, would you call it a health care law? You said it's not an, an insurance law. It, it, it might be considered a health care law, Justice Ginsburg. That's correct. And in that case, it would not come within the saving clause. Uh, but it's a law uh, that regulates the contracts between the providers and the HMOs. Now, uh, just to re- re- 
go back slightly over what I just said. We are not here challenging the basic concept of state regulation of HMOs. Where we think the Court has drawn the line uh, and where we would urge that it continue to draw the line is to say that a law regulates insurance if it affects risk spreading, which this does not. Uh, the risk here uh, is the risk of financial loss from needing medical care. Uh, ERISA actually has a helpful definition that makes that clear. The definition of an employee welfare benefit plan, uh, which is the kind of plan we're dealing with here, is a plan that provides benefits uh, for medical, surgical, or hospital care or benefits in the event of sickness. That's I, I, the I recognize that we have the risk spreading and the, and, the, and the factors, and then we have the common sense test. We've got all the tests floating around here. Uh, it, it seems to me that this just does regulate insurance. Uh, but it regulates only the non-insurance relationships, uh, Justice Kennedy. It, it's exactly what the Court held was not insurance in Royal Drug. Uh, they're external to the insurance relationship, and they don't change the uh, insurance relationship at all. How do you — what about metropolitan life? I mean, you, have a, you have a contract. The State says — I would have thought the harder thing, which I don't think anymore, is was, was, is an HMO an insurer? Well, we went over that in that other case, Rush. And it's quite clear that 40 states regulate them as insurers, so we know they're insurers. Now, if a state tells an insurer, Mr. Insurance Company, when you write that contract, you have to put in it mental health benefits. No, isn't that regular? Is that that's the part of the business of insurance? That, that's absolutely regulation of the business insurance. And right. Now, here what they're saying is you have to put in use any physician benefits. I mean, it's the same question. What, well, what? How do we? How do you get out the, of that? The, sure. The distinction is our our test is affect the transfer of the risk, and in that case, there is suddenly a new covered risk. The risk of needing mental health care is covered by the policy, and if that's not at issue, and the Court has had recent decisions where it has not analyzed risk spreading, found it unnecessary. It's always looked at the second McCarran factor. It's always considered you know, whether uh, the legal rights of the insured are uh, being regulated here, are being protected by the state regulation in the insurer-insured relationship. And in that mandated benefit case, they're clearly getting a new legal right, uh, which they do not have under any willing provider. You would not consider the, the, the benefit of having a selection among physicians as a benefit? Yeah, that's cr in a colloquial sense, of course, if all these so things say, fall into financial. place. As long as you pay the bills, that's, that's the only it, thing the insurance is intended to cover. If all these eventualities fall into place and you do have a broader choice, that's obviously in a colloquial sense of some benefit, but it's not what benefit means under an insurance means under the Court's Savings Clause precedent. But, of course, the, the, the criteria, the way we refer to that criterion under the McCarran-Walter trio is, is, is not in terms strictly of legal right, though that will satisfy it. We ask whether it's integral to the policy relationship. And I suppose something can be integral to the policy relationship, even though it is not expressed literally in terms of uh, policy language uh, which grounds a conventional right. That, that's correct, Justice Souter. It is phrased in terms of uh, integral to the relationship. However, when the Court has described that factor in pilot life in Unum versus Ward and Rush Prudential, it's used terms, Rush Prudential, a legal right to the insured enforceable no, against the No HMO. question that that, that certainly is uh, a, an, an example of something right. that is integral. But I, I would suppose that the difference uh, in, in the kind of policy choices that we've been talking about 
would be regarded as a, by a potential HMO subscriber uh, as, as integral to what he is purchasing when he signs up with, with one HMO rather than another. Our point, in Pilot Life, the Court described the second factor as not satisfied because the, uh, the, the cause of action does not define the terms of the relationship. And we would say uh, that has not, does not occur either under any willing provider. Uh, if there are no further questions, I'd reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Ms. Dreckles. Uh, Mr. Ms. Johnson, we'll hear from you. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As a matter of common sense, Kentucky's unwilling provider statutes regulate insurance because they are solely directed at the insurance industry. These statutes apply only to Kentucky insurers issuing Kentucky health benefit plans. Petitioners are insurers regulated by the Commissioner of Insurance. The health benefit plans that they offer are exclusively regulated by the Commissioner of Insurance. These statutes are located in Subtitle 17A of the Kentucky Insurance Code. But that's, they could just as well have been in something labeled health code. This is not like, I mean, things that regulate risk, you'd say, oh, yeah, I'm going to find that in the insurance code. Here, wouldn't it have been, suppose the law had been written to say that no doctor can join a closed plan. Would it be the same thing, wouldn't it? If that law was not in the insurance code, first of all, it would not be enforceable by Commissioner Miller. Um, Second of all, insurers are the only entity that builds networks for the benefit of their insured. When an insurer decides to offer a managed care plan, they tie in the network of providers to the benefit. Uh, thus, the terms in-network benefit, out-of-network benefit. Um, therefore, if that law was on the books and was not enforceable against the insurer, the insurer would create closed panels, and they wouldn't be able to have any doctors. Well, there would be uh, the equivalent of disbarment, a doctor, a rule, a regulation of the medical profession is. <clears throat> Doctor, you cannot join a closed plan. It seems to me that would accomplish the very same thing, but it would be in the health code. Unlike some things, it can't be that everything that the insurance commissioner does is therefore regulating insurance within the meaning of this legislation. That's correct, Justice Ginsburg, but this Court has found that relevant to the inquiry. And the fact that this is an insurance law that is only directed toward those insurers regulated by the Commissioner of Insurance is very important and it is relevant. And the fact that these statutes are in Subtitle 17A of the Kentucky Insurance Code, which dictates the benefits to be included in a Kentucky health benefit and the requirements for those insurers offering those plans. The common sense test is also met because these statutes regulate an insurance practice. And that practice is the practice of insurers offering managed care plans to contract with providers for the benefit of their insureds. I, can, I, I, would, I would be sympathetic to your case. I, I keep bumping up against the royal drug case, where it seems to me all of the practical things you say about this case could have been said there. The, the contract uh, really is is altered, the contract of the insured. Under one situation, he has to go to a certain drugstore. 
Under another situation, he has his choice of drugstores, which may provide lower cost, even if it doesn't provide lower cost. It's a great convenience to be able to go around the, around the corner. And yet we said that, you know, limiting the number of drugstores uh, with whom the insured could deal did not affect the business of insurance. Your Honor, How Royal do you distinguish that from this case? Your Honor, Royal Drug is both factually and legally distinguishable from the present case. First of all, I know it is factual. I don't care about factually. Okay. Tell me why it's legally distinguishable. Well, legally distinguishable is that you're, you're, in Royal Drug you were looking at one federal statute. In the present case, you're looking at another. In Royal Drug — Well, now, wait. You, you, you want us to abandon the, the proposition that uh, what constitutes the business of insurance is the same under, under the antitrust laws as it is no, Your Honor, and I, I, I believe the analysis — Unless you want us to abandon that, then, then, then what you've just said doesn't make any sense. No, Your Honor, I believe the analysis of Royal Drug was, was appropriate and, and accurate for an antitrust uh, analysis as opposed to analysis under the Savings Clause, which this Court — So you say the same analysis does not apply. You're saying that the, you know, McCarran-Ferguson criteria — do not necessarily apply to ERISA. I mean, maybe they shouldn't, but that's certainly new for no, — uh, No, Your Honor. They are relevant, as this Court has said, but they are not required. And in this Court — They are Met relevant but not required. In this uh, — in Metropolitan Life, this Court came up with a, a broader test of the common-sense — common-sense test. And that test is, is um, tested by the McCarran-Ferguson factors that were developed in rural drug. But they are not required — they are relevant. So the very, the very factor that qualifies as the, the very same factor, let's assume that they were factually the same, the very same factor that qualifies as part of the business of insurance in our antitrust analysis could nonetheless qualify as not business of insurance under ERISA. Is that, is that right? No. Vice versa. In an ERISA case, this court starts Quite with, the, with the common sense test. And w under the common sense test, this court looks at whether or not — No, but just, just answer yes or no to what I just said. I think you got — I think you, I think you want no. to say yes. Would you please restate your question? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take the very same factor, like the exclusion of certain pharmacies. Which, which was the case in Royal Drug. Mm -hmm. That very same factor could constitute the business of insurance under ERISA and yet not constitute the business of insurance under the antitrust laws because we're applying a different test, a common sense test. Is that, is that your position? The common sense test controls in a risk of preemption analysis. So your answer to my question is yes or no? In your analysis, is there a state law that requires, or is it Well, in the ERISA case, case, there is. In the antitrust case, there isn't. I mean, that's what makes antitrust different from ERISA, I think. Right. Uh, but but, but they, they both focus on the very same factor the provision of pharmacists, the ability of the insured to select pharmacists. Now, you say that that could be the business of insurance for ERISA and yet could not be the business of insurance in antitrust cases. 
Yes or no? Yes. Okay. I think that's the right, that, yes. that's the right yes. answer. <laughs> for you, it's the right answer. I'm not sure yes. it's the right answer for me. Yes. And may I ask a follow-up mm-hmm. question then? If the whole difference then is this, quote, common sense test, mm-hmm. I'll tell you frankly what my problem is. I read the Sixth Circuit opinion. I said, yeah, that makes common sense. Mm-hmm. And I read just Judge Kennedy's Descending opinion, he said, yeah, that's common sense, too. So what? These these are rational judges on both sides. They both made good arguments, and they both conform to some sense of what goes on in the real world. So what is the common sense test? Well, Justice Ginsburg, it's a very broad test, and I I think it's looking at the whole picture and the fact that this law is um, focused on regulated insurers, risk-bearing entities that are under the control of Commissioner Miller, and it regulates their insurance practices. Uh, Twenty years ago, you might not have had the issue where um, providers, uh, that insurers were contracting with providers for the benefit of their insurers. But that is a, a, a very prevalent practice in the insurance industry today. And the state departments of insurance uh, regulate that practice. And in Kentucky, it's heavily regulated. On page 15 of my brief, I, I set forth many Kentucky statutes that regulate the insurer's relationship with the health care provider for the benefit of the insured. These statutes were also set forth on page 2 of the Solicitor General's brief. That is a common practice in, in, um, in the insurance industry today, and it's a heavily regulated practice. Uh, the, uh, also, I guess if you're taking the view that the language business of insurance could mean different things for purposes of Section 2B of McCarran-Ferguson and here, you'd find support for that in Rock Royal Drug itself, isn't it, which said that maybe the meaning of those words in 2A and 2B, although they're the same words, is different. It is different, and, and Your Honor, and in uh, Royal Drug, was this court made it clear that they were trying to uh, decide whether an insurer's um, uh, practice of entering into provider agreements uh, was const- constituted the quote business of insurance for the purpose of meeting a very narrow exemption from the antitrust liability. Well, it isn't only that. I think the statutory language refers to the regulation of the business of insurance. And in the insurance case in Royal Drug, there was no official regulation, only private regulation of the agreement. Whereas in this case, you have public regulation. So it's conceivable that here you have regulation of insurance, and there you don't count a private agreement as the kind of regulation that the statute's speaking about. That's true, Justice Stevens. And, and in Ro- what the court said, though. Yes, is- it is. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, the, <laughs> um, the McCarran-Ferguson factors are also met. Um, as the Sixth Circuit noted, the second factor is clearly met. These statutes regulate an integral part of the policy relationship between the insurer and the insured. In managed care plans, provider agreements are essential. In managed care plans and under Kentucky law, certificates of coverage cannot exist independently from the provider directory. 
These statutes simply prohibit insurers from arbitrarily limiting the number of providers that they contract with for the benefit of their insureds. These statutes allow insureds greater access to the health care provider of their choice. And I think this is, is, is clearly seen in uh, KRS 304-17A. 5051K, which which requires the insurer to disclose that they are willing to contract with any willing provider. This simply puts more control to the insured and their relationship with their health care provider, which is a very personal and unique relationship. Royal Drug says that the spreading of risk is an indispensable characteristic of insurance. It then holds that the pharmacy agreements do not involve any underwriting or spreading of risk. Now, why aren't those two propositions as, as true here as they were in Royal Drug, that the spreading of risk is the essence of, of insurance and that an agreement between the provider of the goods and services and the insurance company is not part of the spreading of risk. I mean, maybe Royal Drug is wrong, but I, I, I don't see I don't see how you how you get out of that box. Well, again, Justice Scalia, and I don't like the you know common sense test. I know it when I see it. Uh, what I worry about uh, uh, the, the the common sense test is that we will approve those things that we like and disapprove those things that we don't like. I mean, who likes a private antitrust arrangement that, that limits choice? So you just say, common sense, that's not the business of insurance. And uh, who doesn't like something that enables, uh, enables uh, uh, the insureds to, to have a greater selection in, doctor, in doctors? So we say, common sense says, that is the business of insurance. I, I, I don't trust common sense. I, I, I want some rule of law that, uh, that that I can adhere to. I thought we had one in Royal Drug, and I, I'm, I'm just not persuaded about why insurance is one thing there and it's something else here. I mean, if, if indeed the spreading of risk is what insurance is about, then... Your Honor, the uh, Sixth Circuit did find that Kentucky's any willing providers transfer or spread policyholder risk. As the Sixth Circuit noted, these statutes open and how does it spread the risk? Actually, uh, it's hard for me to see that it does that. Uh, Justice O'Connor, when a when a uh, insurer sets up a managed care plan and structures their benefits to to be in a managed care plan, they have tied in the network of providers to that benefit. And when you have a statute on the books that allows the insured and the health care provider greater control to continue a relationship, and common sense tells us that an, an insured will seek an out-of-network provider in order to ensure continuity of care and that unique relationship. What these statutes do is they — I don't see how that spreads the risk. I understand you think there's a practical benefit to the insurers, mm-hmm. but how does it spread the risk, it, Your Honor, it increases the risk for the insurer that the insured will not have to seek treatment from the out-of-network provider. However, as this Court has noted, all three McCarran-Ferguson factors are not required to be met. This Court reiterated that last term in Rush Prudential versus Moran. Unless there's any more questions, I will conclude by saying that Kentucky's Any Willing Provider statutes are laws that regulate insurance and therefore are saved from a risk of preemption. 
Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. Mr. Feldman, we'll hear from you. You've got her. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, Mr. Feldman, what would be an example of a measure which did spread the risk, as that term was referred to in Royal Drug? Uh, well, I think one example would be in Metropolitan Life against Massachusetts. Certainly, uh, I think everybody, I understand everybody here to agree that a uh, law that required an insurance policy to include insurance against a particular risk would spread the risk. But I think what, uh, in this case, it also comes very, it spreads the risk for, at least for purposes of ERISA, for this reason. What this law is is a condition on the spreading of risk. The insurer is saying, we are going to ex- spread the risk so long as you go to an in-network provider. And the state here is regulating that condition. And really, it's analogous. It has to do with the performance of the risk spreading. You're, you're saying the first McCarran-Ferguson care, uh, factor includes a provision that determines the way the insurer manages the risk, even though it may not affect the risk as between the insurer and the insured. But I think it does affect — not quite. I think it actually does — it does affect that risk. But, no, but I, I, I thought but that I was the argument condition. you were making right then and there. It's, it's a condition on the spreading of risk or a condition on the performance of the insurance contract. And in the FABE case, which was a McCarran-Ferguson Act case, but involved a different provision of the McCarran-Ferguson Act than at issue in Royal Drug and the, the Perino case, well, how, followed how, it. As a practical matter, does it affect the risk here? Is the, is the risk increased for the insurance company under this law because it under the, under the Kentucky law it has to pay for — chiropractic services where otherwise it would not, so that's an increase in the risk? Is that, is that your point? It rem- I, I guess I, I, for you, it certainly could be, I think semantically it could be said to just increase the risk in just that way. I think for me I'm more, it's more comfortable to talk about a, it removes a condition on the spreading of risk. The risk would be spread under, if without this law, so long as you go to a provider who the HMO has said, we're going to let into that's, our network. That was here, going to be my second question. That seems to me that's the risk spreading. And right, and here the risk spreading is, so long it, we're going to spread this such and such risk, but so long as you go to any willing provider. And it that's a, it's a condition. It I mean, it just does, does it. I mean, it's simply an ordinary, it, it's what it's a regulation of, is if the risk eventuates, the insurer has to carry out his side of the bargain in this particular way. It's right. a regulation of the goods or services that an insurer provides. That, that's and the, correct. And the risk is a condition, as a health condition of the patient that it will be covered. Yes, but, but it's really exactly the same as what this Court faced in FABE, where what well, was What's the issue? name of the case? A Department of Treasury against FABE. In that case, what was at issue was a priority statute about how to distribute the assets of an insurance company after it has become insolvent. And it had nothing to do with the contract as to what, what risks the insurer was going to insure. But what the Court said is it does have to do with the performance of that contract, because if the assets are spread in a certain way, the insurer will actually get paid — the insured will actually get paid if that well, risk results, and well, otherwise what, what not. If the risk we're talking — the risk is that the patient becomes ill and needs yes. medical care. Yes. Yes. And this is a condition on that. But I, I don't — So, so how, how, how does this measure spread the risk, or why does it not spread the risk? It, 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 it operates as a condition on the spreading of risk because without this law, there, well, the, the, it, the risk will — the insurance policy says, we, you, we will spread this risk among all our insurers. If you get ill, we're going to pay for it so long as you satisfy a certain condition. And what this law does is it alters what that condition is. Which is to say it doesn't spread the risk. So if the, the, the other case means you have to have a risk, then you lose. Right, but the court but, has, but it doesn't, I thought — 
that that other case has to, since it involves the provision by an insurer of goods and services and a regulation of how, when the risk eventuates, it is pretty similar. And so the difference is what they say in footnote 18, I guess, which is probably what was going on here, which is that we're interpreting not the McCarran Act's effort to allow states to regulate insurance. We are interpreting what they call the secondary purpose. And that purpose was to impose a narrow, narrower limitation on the reach of the antitrust right. law. And, right, and th- that is true. And the Court repeated that in Royal Drug and in Pereno and in Fabe. In all of those McCarran-Ferguson Act cases, it made exactly that point. And it, in the is ERISA that the context, key distinction, or is there another one, too? Well, I think that's the most important one, but there's a, there's a number that are related. In the ERISA context, for example, the Court has added court said, well, we first look as a matter of common sense at the insurance policies. It didn't just say we are going to apply the McCarran-Ferguson Act to ERISA, and it shouldn't be surprising that there are therefore some differences between the two, or otherwise it would have been unnecessary for the court as the primary test to look at the policy as a whole. Second, in the ERISA context, the court has specifically said that not all three factors are necessary to be found in order to find that something regulates uh, uh, insurance. It's all very sophisticated, but it just seems to me that what constitutes the insurance in one in one situation ought to constitute insurance well, in another and that sense. it's just common sense I, I, and and <laughs> and and what and what we're doing when when we when we deny it is 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 exercising policy judgments about whether we think the the, the, the particular thing that's been done is desirable or not desirable I, I don't I don't think that's correct and I, I don't think it should be surprising that there are some differences between ERISA and the McCarran Ferguson Act not only because of the policy differences but there's a noted difference in language between what the statute that the court was construing in Royal Drug and in Pereno and with the one it's construing here. So you don't think that, the, that, uh, that uh, under ERISA it's important that what is regulated is the business of insurance? Well, ERISA just says regulate insurance. I understand that. So you think it doesn't have to be the business of insurance. It, it could be other aspects of the insurance of the insurance company. I think the court recognized that there can be a difference. Like what buildings are they insurance companies have to be in and other things. I no, mean, but I — Depart from the business of ins- the business of insurance concept, uh, concept in the McCarran-Ferguson line of cases, it seemed to me, was essential to make, to make sense of it. And it's just as essential to make sense of the ERISA prescription. I think it's because of the difference in language that the court, from Metropolitan Life on, has adopted a different analysis in ERISA. And there's actually two differences. One is that in Royal Drug and in Pereno, which involved the antitrust exemption that has to be narrowly construed, you were just talking about a a law that that is is the business of insurance. In the FABE case, which involved the other part of McCarran-Ferguson, which saves state laws in areas of traditional — in an area of traditional state regulation, it talks about regulating the business of insurance. In ERISA, you're now one step farther away because now it just says regulate insurance. And I think those laws are differently worded, and there's every reason to give them a somewhat different scope. Have we ever analyzed a case that way in solving these problems? Have we ever relied on that difference in language, Mr. Pillman? Well, in the — I think the court in the Pereno case for — oh, the difference in language, I don't — regulating the business I, I don't think the court has relied on that specific language in any of its cases so far because most of the cases everything has lined up and it hasn't had to 
But I will say that in the ERISA cases, there's now a couple of them where the Court has made clear that all three of the McCarran-Ferguson actors, factors don't have to be applied in ERISA. And the Court has never reached that conclusion under the antitrust exemption in the McCarran-Ferguson Act. Well, that would be ridiculous to reach it, since the three factors are what the McCarran-Ferguson Act is. Right. But by recognizing that, they, that they're not all, specifically holding that they're not all necessary in ERISA, I think the Court, again, recognized that there can be a divergence in between the two areas. And one reason, I suppose, is the presumption against pre- preemption, which we are trying to maintain in ERISA. That's right. That's right. And I, I would like to add one other thing about the, uh, what's been called the common sense test, which is I do think the Court has given substantial content to it in its cases. It talks about an, a regulation that homes in on the insurance industry or is aimed at the insurance industry. It is relevant w- how the State codified it because, as the Court said in, um, as recently as Rush, I think, uh, the, the term insurance acquires its coloration and meaning from state law, state practice, and state usage because what Congress was trying to do was preserve state law in an area of traditional state authority, and therefore the codification in the insurance code is of relevance. And finally, at the very least, a state law that affects the contract between the insured and the insurer, which this one does, has a necessary effect on that contra- uh, contract, and in fact a substantial one, that, at, although what is insurance may be broader than that. Something that does satisfy that, I think, clearly is insurance under the, the, the Mr. Company. Thelma, can I ask you a question? Do you suppose if in the royal drug situation there had been an insurance regulation that required the insurance company to give the patient an option between generic and, and non-generic drugs, that that would have been the regulation of the business of insurance? I think it probably would have been. Um, and I, I think that would, of course, been analyzed under the other, the other half of the McCarran-Ferguson Act if it was a state regulation of that sort. That concludes my argument. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Feldman. Mr. Eccles, you have two minutes remaining. I'll address four points, if I may. First, as to the argument that a condition is removed in the policy by operation of the Kentucky law, that's not true. Before and after the Kentucky law, the condition on getting payment from a from a participating physician is identical. All that's changed is that outside uh, network. The law, just so I'm clear, does not by itself uh, uh, require a network to admit a chiropractor when it has no chiropractic coverage. That's a different law. If it did that, we would say that definitely affects the legal uh, rights of the insured and would be a mandated benefit law, such as the Court uh, sustained. Second point, we are not, the comment was made by counsel for the commissioner about regulations of providers providing benefits to the insureds. Some do, and those, the line we would draw, say, if it's a regulation of a provider, such as a continuity of care, such as a hold harmless provision that prevents the provider from billing to the balance above the network rate, that clearly affects the legal rights of the insured and would be saved under our test. Third, Royal drug, it's this Court's precedents that have said the royal drug analysis is directly relevant to the ERISA savings cause. It was the dissent in royal drug said that pharmacy agreement is integral to the relationship. You can't have it without, you, you can't have the insurance without the pharmacy agreement. But that was said in the dissent. The Court rejected that view. Uh, and who is in the participating network is not part of the benefit of the insured. The insured just has no right to decide uh, what doctor to go to or uh, any legal right. To address 
fourth and finally, to address uh, perhaps um, more concisely the question of why do we care if this isn't going to expand the networks, it's, it hurts us even if the network doesn't expand in the slightest because if nothing changes, if no choices or options are expanded, uh, the uncertainty that has resulted is added to the administrative costs. It's affected the ability to be selective. You have these. Thank you, Mr. Eccles. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.